1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. That is page 957 in the Red Pew Bible. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. My name is Steve, and I'm the associate pastor here at Regen. And uh, just a couple of uh, things, business items, if you will, before uh, we get into this text uh, a little bit more. Uh, first is just, um, I just want to let you know that I survived the weekend, okay? My wife is at the women's retreat along with about 25 other women from our church. And so I was able to get our kids to church and preach all on the same Sunday. So I feel like that's a big win for Steve. You don't need to clap for that. That's okay. <laughs> uh, the second thing is, um, uh, along with that announcement about the gym floor, this has been a, a very interesting project um, that continues on. And I just wanted to say thank you uh, to several of you who have spent a lot of time on your hands and knees scraping glue Probably not something you ever thought you would have to do, um, or certainly thought it would be a way for you to serve your church, but um, it has been a tremendous uh, effort and a tremendous gift uh, to be able to uh, do that together and to um, save on this project um, because of your labor. So I want to say thank you for that. Uh, I talked a couple of weeks ago about communitas and how community sometimes is formed through these weird circumstances. So this was sort of God's way of saying, have some communitas as you take a blowtorch to the gym floor. And if you're like, did he just say blowtorch? Yes, I did. And if you want to know more about that, come on Saturday to the, to the work day. <laughs> the final thing I want to say is um, thank you to Luke and to the worship team. Uh, Michael, we already gave them a round of applause, but... Uh, Luke and several others have really stepped up in the wake of Jane, our, our worship director, being on medical leave. And so we're really grateful for them, for the sacrifices that they are making to continue to lead us uh, in worship. We're in good hands uh, for the next several weeks as Jane is out. Uh, some good news there. Jane is going to start uh, treatment this week, and, uh, and that's um, at least a move in the right direction. And so we're grateful for that. And I want to begin kind of on that note. Let's, let's uh, begin in prayer um, for Jane and for our community and for the things that are coming this week. So pray with me and then we'll get started in our conversation here. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we uh, do continue to bring our sister Jane before you. Um, we are grieved at the, the news um, of the return of her cancer and we continue to hold her up uh, to you in prayer. God, we ask for a miracle. We ask for uh, just an incredible healing in her body. Um, and a, a testament to your power. We pray for her this week as she begins treatment, God, um, that you would give her courage, that you would give her peace, uh, and that you would just be with her as 
she begins to uh, undergo the treatment program that they have for her. Um, God, now as we turn our attention to your word, there's a lot going on here at this church. There's a lot going on in our hearts and in our minds. And we ask that you would hold those things for us now so that we can fully turn our attention to your word, to worshiping you, towards taking communion, towards being with each other, so that we may hear your voice, that we may be encouraged or challenged in whatever way we need to be this morning, God. That we would be able to take the next step, whatever that might be for us. Give us the courage to do that today. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. <clears throat> all right. In eighth grade, I started at a new school. And, uh, you know, being at a new school in eighth grade is a, a fairly traumatic experience. Um, I was a little bit lucky because I did know some people at this particular school from some sports teams that I played on, but still awkward eighth grader at a new school trying to figure things out. And so it was that good news showed up for me in 1993 in the form of two albums that came out over the course of that year. One of those albums was put out by a little local band named Green Day and the other by a guy named Snoop Dogg. I'm not going to tell you the, the names of the albums. They're not appropriate for Sunday morning, but you can Wikipedia it and figure it out. Anyway, some of you right now are like, oh my gosh, he's talking about Snoop Dogg in church. And others of you are like, oh, I remember those days and where I was. And others of you are like, who's Snoop Dogg? <laughs> now, this was back, as I just said, in the early 90s. And so we did not have Spotify or iTunes or, or any of these kinds of streaming services, easy access to music. So you had to work a little bit to get uh, these albums into your hands. And uh, just the home that I grew up in, and this is super embarrassing because my parents were here during the first service and I had never told them this before. So it was a moment, of, a moment of confession. But what I had to do is borrow these albums from friends. And this was when CDs were coming out. So I borrowed the CDs and then I put them into my boom box and I recorded them onto blank tapes. And the beauty of the blank tape is that you can write anything on it. Steve's Mix or whatever, and no one knows what's on there. And so that's how I got these albums. I would listen to them uh, on my Walkman with my headphones on so that, you know, my parents didn't know what was going on, although they probably did. We'll have a laugh about this a little bit later. But anyway, those two albums spoke to me as an eighth grader, as an awkward eighth grader at a new school at that particular moment in my life. And I begin here, this is sort of a, a weird story to begin a sermon, but I begin here Partly as a way of confession, but also because good news comes to us in a lot of weird ways. Good news shows up in our lives in a lot of weird ways. And for an eighth grade boy starting at a new school in this awkward stage of life, feeling like an outsider, not knowing where everything was in the lay of the land and being picked on for being the new guy, this music gave voice to those experiences, those emotions that I was feeling. And so putting those headphones on, getting lost in those albums, it was empowering and it was electric and it helped me make sense of what was happening to me at that time. Now, please note, this is not an endorsement of either of those albums, okay? I just want to make that very, very clear. But again, in that moment, at that stage of my life, they were good news for me. And perhaps you've had a similar experience, maybe not with Green Day or Snoop Dogg, maybe it was with something else, right? But it was a book or a film, 
or it was an experience that you had. Maybe it was a conversation or a, a friendship that surprised you. Maybe it was traveling somewhere or it was an unexpected email or a letter, but good news arrived in a surprising way. I start with Snoop Dogg and Green Day mostly because it was the most ridiculous example that I could think of from my own life. But also because I want us to have this in mind. Sometimes good news shows up in very surprising and unexpected ways. And it may not have the right packaging, the right appearance. It may not fit in the right boxes or check the right categories. And yet this thing, this art, this person, this experience, it speaks to us. It energizes us. It challenges us. It changes us. And it helps us even understand God in a new way. It can be good news for us. I want you to hold on to that idea for just a moment. We're going to do a little bit of review, okay? Back in February, as a bridge between our studies in Mark and Ecclesiastes, we spent three weeks in a series called Disciple, and we're going to continue that today and next Sunday. So I want to review a little bit of what we talked about there just to kind of get us back on the, on the same page and refresh our memories a little bit. So a couple of big ideas from our previous conversation in this series. First is this. We saw that our God is a missional God. God has always been on a mission. At first, his mission was to create a home and a family to be able to extend himself, extend his love to us. And now, in the wake of Genesis 3, in the wake of our sin and our rebellion, our rejection of God's good created order, he is on a mission to put his family back together. God is a missional God. Second, we get to participate in the mission. This is the life that Jesus has invited us into. A life where we give ourselves away so that others might find life, so that others can join and be a part of God's family. Now, a quick addendum here to this point. This is not something that we do by ourselves. This is something we do in community with each other. It's part of what makes church fun and beautiful. A church is always at its best when it is on mission together. Broken and poured out together as Jesus is broken and poured out for us. Now the third thing was this. We are not thrown into this mission empty-handed. We are equipped, gifted for the mission. We all have a role to play and God in his graciousness has given each of us a particular way of expressing that, a particular role to play as we all work together in his mission. And just a real quick plug, if you'd like to know more about this, if, if, if you're sort of curious as to, oh, well, that, that sounds interesting, how has God gifted me? We are starting today another round of our Regen Community class. Um, so the next session is going to be right after this service, 1215, right over here uh, in the youth room. And it's a three-week, uh, three weeks for an hour in each session. We look first at, at who the church is, and then we look at uh, who you are, how God has wired you, and then we look at what does it look like to do life together, and in particular, how have you been gifted spiritually to serve God's mission, and you, you can just show up today if you want. We have enough space for you um, at 12.15. Okay, so that's, that's where we were. That's the, the kind of uh, quick review, and now we're going to move forward with a couple, of, uh, a couple of new conversations. So today, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 
chapter 9. And uh, this is, we're just looking at a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians. So what I want to do first is give a little bit of background for this letter so that we better understand the, the words of Paul. Paul's the guy writing this letter uh, before we dig into it. So Paul's one of the key leaders of the early church. He, uh, he spent a lot of time uh, going around, uh, all around um, the Middle East and, and even into parts of, of Europe, sharing the good news of Jesus with people, strengthening churches, planting churches. One of, the, one of these churches is this church at Corinth. Corinth is a young church, both in age but especially in their faith. A lot of very new Christians made up this church which was in a city, again, Corinth, that was a lively seaport city. It was a crossroads in the Roman Empire. It was the capital of the province of Achaia. And you had people from all over the Roman Empire, really all over the world, who came together in this city. Now, you've got to use your imagination here for just a second, okay? Try to imagine, if you can, a church, a younger church, in a pluralistic, multicultural seaport city where all kinds of different people come together. Can you imagine a church like this? Some of you are slowly getting it, okay? <laughs> now, as a young church, the Corinthians faced a number of different challenges. Again, these challenges should sound very familiar to us here in Oakland. Some of these challenges were internal, okay? They got into fights and debates about theology. They struggled to figure out how do we reconcile these different groups of people, these different points of view within one congregation? What, what actually unites us and brings us together? And then they, on top of that, they faced the external pressure of living in a city, living in a culture that was not congenial to the gospel in any way. So these internal pressures, these external pressures, and in light of those pressures, one of the big questions that they wrestled with and one of the primary themes of the letter to the Corinthians is the issue, the question of freedom. In particular, is the Christian, because of God's grace, because of what God has done through Jesus, forgiving our sins, making a way for us to be in right relationship with him and with each other, is the Christian free to then do whatever he or she wants? Are there now no rules or boundaries to which a Jesus follower must submit since everything is covered by grace? This is a classic question for churches in pluralistic societies to this very day. And Paul, in his usual style, he just goes right after these questions. And one of his main points throughout the whole letter is, yes, we are free. And thanks be to God for his grace that gives us this freedom. But in our freedom... Paul argues we are actually governed by a different law, by a better law, and that is the law of love. This theme of love, another major theme within the book of of 1 Corinthians. You have probably heard that passage. We read it at weddings all the time. Love is patient, love is kind. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We read that at weddings and people cry and it's so beautiful and That passage was never intended to be read at a wedding, although it does serve its purpose in that context. Those words are written in this letter to this young 
congregation trying to figure out what it looks like to be a multicultural congregation, to be a community united, living together on mission. Paul ends that section, that very famous section, by saying, Now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. Why is love so important to Paul's argument in this letter? What does love have to do with this question of freedom? Love is important. It's primary because, Paul argues, it is the mission. To love God and to love each other. To seek the good of our neighbor. Uh, of our neighbors and our city to invite everyone back into the family of God. And it is primary because it's love that leads us to sacrifice. It's love that leads us to lay down whatever our thing is, whatever our freedom thing that we hold tightly to, to lay that down for the sake of the mission. The greatest of these is love. So there's a little bit of background to keep in mind as we come to these words here in chapter 9. Look at that again. I'm just going to read a couple of those verses over. 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 19. For though I am free, there's that theme, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. And then skipping down, I have become all things to all people, That by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Now I don't know about you, but for me sometimes when I hear this passage or I read some of these words, I kind of have like a uh, reaction to it. My first job was working at a car dealership. My first job where I had to like fill out tax forms and have a timesheet and all that kind of stuff. I detailed the cars that were sold. So they'd sell a car, they'd give it to me, I'd make it look, look and smell like a new car, and then the new person would drive off with it. And on a slow day, I would sit in the lobby, and I'd watch the salesman do their thing, waiting for a deal to get done, so that I could you know, take the car and go turn it around for the new owner. And I got to tell you that some of the worst conversations that I've ever heard between human beings took place in that lobby. And I think that for some of us, when we read this passage, you can hear that a little bit, right? You hear that car salesman pitch in some of Paul's words. And even if you don't hear that, this still raises some questions for us. Okay, what's going on here? Is Paul being inauthentic? Is Paul a people pleaser? Is Paul being manipulative? What does it mean to win people? Is Paul some sort of slick huckster, like one of those infomercial people you see you know, on TV late at night when you're flipping the channels yelling at you to buy their thing? What is going on here? Let's read this again, but this time we're going to read it from the message. Hopefully this helps us hear it and see it a little bit differently. Even though I am free of the demands and expectations of everyone, I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people, religious, non-religious, meticulous, moralists, loose-living, immoralists, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but 
I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. I did all this because of the message. I didn't just want to talk about it. I wanted to be in on it. So, Paul starts off here by affirming the emphasis on freedom. Again, yes, we're free. Paul says, I am free just like you are. But then Paul gives us this very mature definition of freedom. Freedom does not mean that I get to do whatever I want. Under this law of love, I freely become a servant. I freely give my life away. So this is not freedom from, freedom from obligations or freedom from restrictions. This is a freedom for. Freedom to be a certain kind of person. Freedom to live the kind of life God intended us to live. Freedom for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of his mission and purposes. So Paul says, I have used my freedom to become a servant for the sake of the mission. To, we, to reach as wide a range of people as possible. Now Paul says an important thing here in the middle of all this. Let's not lose this. He says, I did not take on their way of life. I did not use my freedom as an excuse to be foolish. But I did. I entered their world to get to know them, to understand them. And this is so critical to figure out what good news would be for them. Why does Paul do this? Because of love. Paul's great love for people. He wants them to experience a God-saved life. He wants them to experience life in the family. Paul becomes all things for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the mission, not to be cool or relevant, not to have a bigger church, not to fit into the culture, for the mission and out of love. And don't forget, Paul paid for this dearly. Paul suffered beatings. He was thrown in prison several times. He lost any sense of a secure and stable or prestigious life. This is not a slick salesman preying on vulnerable people. This is a man who wants to give everything that he has every last bit of life and energy so that as many people as possible can know the Jesus who saved him. So now what I want to do is I want to look at a couple of examples. That's sort of Paul's thesis, his mission statement for his life. Let's look at a couple of examples of how he actually does this. So in your Bible, turn over to Acts chapter 13. We're going to take a look here at a couple of scenes uh, in Acts 13 and 14. Acts chapter 13, Paul is on one of his journeys. Again, he goes on several journeys all throughout throughout the area where he's uh, meeting with people, planting churches, strengthening pastors, developing leaders. And in Acts chapter 13, he's in a city called Antioch. And beginning in verse 14, we read this. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. They here is Paul and his entourage of people that he's traveling with. 
And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So a couple of real vital pieces of context here in these first couple verses. This is a very Jewish context. It's the Sabbath, a day of great importance to the Jews. It's their holy day of worship. Paul's in, in one of their synagogues and one of their sacred spaces. And this, is, this analogy is a little bit of a stretch, but this is, Paul's in the Bible belt of his time. Okay, he's at that Baptist church with the steeple on Sunday morning, people wearing suits and carrying big old King James Bibles under their arms. Someone told me after the first service, there's a 1698 version of the King James Bible that's even more authentic than whatever one came after that. So just so you know that. (laughs) All right, this is the context that, that Paul is in. And so look at how he speaks to them. Look at how he Uh, Look at the good news that he shares with them in response to this uh, call for a word of encouragement. Okay, he begins a fairly long speech where he appeals to the crowd's Jewish credentials. He calls them men of Israel, children of Abraham. He speaks of their knowledge of God. He, when he references God, he uses the formal Greek word for God, which is a nod to how this Jewish audience would have understood God as Yahweh. He uses their history, their understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. He appeals to the Exodus and the prophets and the kings. He uses all kinds of insider language and knowledge that they would have understood. His sermon is deeply theological. It's heavy on scripture. And it's all used to make the case in verse 23 that God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. And this phrase, as he promised, is so important to what Paul's trying to communicate here, that all of this stuff, all these things that are part of your history, it's been fulfilled in the person of Jesus, and in particular, in his resurrection. Down to verse 30. God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And then look at what he says. We bring you good news. This phrase is, is important. It'll show up again. We bring you good news. What is the good news? That what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. The good news, Paul says, is that God fulfills his promises. And in particular, God fulfills his promises through Jesus, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. This is the proof that he is the Messiah that you have been waiting for all of these thousands of years. This is how God is putting his family back together. Now, the result of all this is that several people believe. Several people become disciples. So what we see here is that Paul knows his audience. He respects their space, respects their knowledge, their understanding of the bigger story of Scripture, and he uses that, he leverages that to present a case for the good news of Jesus. Now, flip over to chapter 14, or look over at Acts chapter 14. They continue on their journey. Paul is now in a city called Lystra. And the scene kind of begins in, uh, in verse 10. Paul encounters a crippled man, and he heals him. And this 
blows the minds of the people who are there to witness it, as it probably would ours if we, if we saw this, right? So they're impressed. And, and being a, a Greek city, a Greek culture, a Greek mindset, they associate Paul with the gods. And in particular, they think that Barnabas, Paul's partner, is Zeus and that Paul is Hermes. And I'm sure Paul is a little bit ticked about that, right? Why does he get to be Zeus? So the people are very excited. They think the gods have come down. And so they begin to make this preparation for a sacrifice. Hey, if the gods are here in our presence, we should do something, right, in response to this. And so Paul stands up and says, why are you doing this? Why are you doing these things? We are men just like you, of like nature with you. And then look at what he says. We bring you good news. But now look at how he explains the good news to this Greek audience in Lystra. We bring you the good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet, he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. A little bit different, right? Okay, both passages, Paul says, we bring you good news. But then how he fills that in is very different depending on his audience. To the Jews at Antioch, he says the good news is that the resurrected Jesus is the fulfillment of a long-awaited promise to God, or by God to his people. To the Gentiles at Leicester, he says the good news is that there is actually a living God. And this phrase living God is, is a different term, a different Greek word for God than the one used in Acts chapter 13. That was the more formal way of speaking about God. Again, because he's talking to this Jewish audience here, it's a, a general theos. This living God is the creator of the world who gives you good things and who allows you to live and prosper. No mention of Jesus, no mention of the resurrection, no Old Testament history, no in-depth Bible study. <gasps> What is Paul doing? Is he contradicting himself? Did he forget to preach the gospel? Is he watering it down? No. No. Paul is becoming all things to all people so that some might be saved. And some are saved. A few verses later, we find out there's a very positive response to the gospel in Lystra, and here we come to a very important principle about mission, okay? The truth does not change. But there is no one way to share the good news about Jesus. God has gifted us with minds, with creativity. He's given us the Holy Spirit to share the good news in as many ways as possible, becoming all things to all people that some might be saved. So we've heard Paul's thesis. We've seen him in action in these two scenes. Now the question becomes, what does this mean for us? What does this look like for us? So I want to suggest just a, a couple of principles, two sort of big principles that can help us share the good news in our context. And then my hope is that in, in home groups this week, you guys will be able to dig a little bit deeper into this 
uh, and unpack this a little bit more. But two big principles. The first is this. We need to know the good news. We need to know what the good news is. We need to have a profound personal encounter with the gospel. And then we need to, we need to cultivate that. We need to continue to mine the depths of that as we get a greater understanding of all the implications of the gospel. Part of what makes Paul so skilled is how deep he's gone with this. He's internalized the truth of God's plan for salvation, the story that goes from Abraham to Israel to the promised Messiah to the fulfillment of Jesus. He understands the theological implications of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, this perfect sacrifice for our sins, this substitutionary death, a defeat of sin and the power of the grave, a new creation. Because he knows this so well, he can see it from all these different angles. He can communicate it extremely well. Paul's like a musician who's drilled on the scale so much that he can just play. He can improvise. And in the same way, we need to be deeply drilled in the truth of the gospel. We need to read and study the scripture on our own. We need to talk about it and work through application in community. And we need to live out its truth to test it. And so that we can speak to how it's shown up in our own lives so that we can better tell our good news story. So a couple of questions here. Have you accepted the good news? Do you know what the good news is? And are you able to tell your good news story? Second big idea here is we need to know the people that we are with. We need to know the people that we are with. This assumes, of course, that we are regularly with people who need good news. Like Paul, you need to know your people. You need to know and understand what causes them pain, what brings them joy. And one thing that I would just sort of suggest here is that we, generally speaking, live in Lystra and not in Antioch. In other words, we live amongst people who do not use the language or understand the terminology that most churches use. And yet we, and I use we here in a very broad sense, we continue to preach at people with Acts 13 Antioch language even though they are Acts 14 Lystra people. Are you with me? Now here in the Bay Area, there's actually probably a million Lystras, right? So we must use our creativity, everything that God has given us, all of our gifts, experiences, stories, talents, abilities to help us Tell the good news of Jesus. For me, this shows up in a lot of different ways in um, conversations that I have. One small sliver, though, of this is in the way that I preach. And so I try to use language like story. I try to introduce us to new terms like shalom and communitas. I try to break down the Hebrew and the Greek words, kind of pour out some of our old understandings of these terms all in an effort to help us understand the gospel in a fresh way, to try to speak that Acts 14 Lystra language. In a similar way, uh, as a church, as a church leadership, we've been meeting for the last couple of years every week. Uh, We call this meeting the marinade because we're so clever. And what we do is we think about the service that's five or six weeks out 
and we read the text together, we pray through the text together, and then we brainstorm creative ways to talk about it, to share that good news. Uh, and we use those things on Sunday morning. You, you guys have probably seen some of this if you've been around for the last couple of years. The way that we use songs or video clips or interviews, uh, testimonies. Sometimes we'll do extended worship. Sometimes we'll have periods of quiet. We have reflection questions. We even did this thing one time where we wrote on rocks. Remember that one? Okay, all of this is to help draw us in to see the gospel in a new way, to experience the good news in a fresh way. Paul says, God has not left himself without witness. In other words, there is good news all around us if you have the eyes to see it. We need to be so well versed in the gospel that we can see it and name it and bear witness to it so that some might be saved. So the question here is, are you bearing witness to the good news? And maybe more specifically, are you using all of your creativity, all your gifts, your experiences to tell your good news story? We started with Green Day and Snoop Dogg, but thank goodness that that's not the only way that good news has shown up for me. Okay, that was again just a ridiculous example. But in particular, as a college freshman, I went through my, uh, my Ecclesiastes, what does it all mean, phase. And good news arrived for me at that point in my life in the form of a community and in the form of a calling for my life. And in particular, it was Jesus' words in Mark chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And at that point in my life, I felt like I was gaining the world and losing my soul. And so these words of Jesus were such good news. That not only did Jesus save me for a glorious future, but also for a meaningful life right now. That by giving my life away for his purposes... Here on earth, I might find a purpose of life that mattered for eternity. What is your good news story? What is your good news story? Can you tell it? Can you name it? Are you bearing witness to the good news that you've experienced? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth that you do not show up in our lives in one particular formulaic way, but you meet us where we are. And you show up in our context and language and and surprise us with good news in so many different ways. And so God, in a similar fashion, may we be people who are able to bear witness to what we've seen, to what we've experienced in ways that are winsome and refreshing that are truly good news for people. Father, I pray for those who may be here this morning who have never accepted you as good news, who feel like this religion thing, church thing, there's no way that could be good news. I pray that you would begin to draw those folks to yourself, that you would make yourself known to them even this morning. 
And then again, God, give us the, the courage to uh, respond to your calling into this mission in, w- in whatever way we need to, whether that's uh, a conversation with someone, whether that's thinking through more deeply the truth of the gospel, whether that's figuring out more about how you've created us and wired us up, God. May we be people who can name and point to and bear witness to the good news of Jesus. That we can have an abundant life right here, right now, and into eternity. That you do the work for us. Make a way possible for us to live in right relationship with you and with each other. God, we are so grateful for your grace. So grateful for the good news of Jesus. Amen.